This week on the Backtable Podcast. I think that we talk about things being competitive and we talk about the different aspects that make a, a great uh, you know, applicant. And those are all true, but let's also remember the statistics uh, over the last year that among U.S. graduating seniors, the match rate is still about 80%. And so this is still a very accessible field. And so especially as we kind of pivot away from uh, score cutoffs uh, and kind of intensely graded medical school curricula, uh, I hope, you know, just to encourage students that are interested in the field to pursue it if you have that interest and don't uh, second guess or discount yourself based on, you know, any of these kind of cut and dry criteria that are being less commonly used. Get a mentor within the field, talk to them about your interest, talk to them about what you think will make you a good urologist. Uh, and then if it all fits, go for it. And we'd love to have you. Welcome to the Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. This is Aaron Fritz as your guest host this week. I'm very excited to introduce our special guests, Dr. Steve Hudak and Dr. Blake Johnson. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Aaron. Great to be here. Steve, as, as our listeners know, has been on the show before. The audience may or may not know this, but I'm an interventional radiologist. We started Backtable uh, you know, on the IR side a few years ago. And just recently in the last few months, we covered this same topic of, you know, how to get into one of these competitive specialties, interventional radiology being one of them, urology, obviously a very competitive specialty. And so we thought it'd be great to cover this topic for our urology trainees, uh, whether you're a med student or perhaps an intern or even a resident in another specialty who's looking to transfer over uh, that we all know that that happens. And so we have Steve, who is a uh, current program director at UT Southwestern and uh, Blake, who's a current second year. But first, I want to let you guys give your own introductions. Blake, we'll start with you. Sure. So um, like Aaron said, I'm Blake Johnson. I'm a current second year urology resident at the University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas. I uh, originally am from Asheville, North Carolina. And my route to urology, I think, is a little bit circuitous. After college, I moved to Boston. I studied epidemiology. I had a big interest in infectious diseases and was working in clinical trials in Boston and found myself really drawn to the more clinical aspects of it. I loved working with patients. Um, I loved kind of the outcomes more than anything. And it drew me actually to apply to medical school. Um, and I ended up at the University of North Carolina uh, back in my home state for medical school. And in college or in medical school, you know, I was always drawn to infectious diseases, especially sexually transmitted diseases, just from my prior work. Um, but then a wrench got thrown into that as a third year medical student. I loved my surgery rotations and I had a bit of an identity crisis of, uh, am I actually a surgeon? What is this? Um, and uh, I, I really struggled to mitigate kind of everything I had done with infectious diseases and with HIV before medical school and uh, being really interested in surgery. And I, I kind of stumbled into urology. I At University of North Carolina, we had a medical school curriculum that actually allowed us uh, some flexible time in each of our week. And you were able to work with, you could do research, you could work with specialists that weren't in the typical third year rotations. And I had gone through a number of different surgical specialties and I had a half day with a urologist in clinic. And it was just a typical general urology clinic. It was a lot of BPH visits, um, a lot of kind of 
minor medication adjustments, post-op visits, a couple procedures, and I just thought it was the coolest thing. Um, and I loved the balance of a clinic-based practice combined with a surgical practice as well, where you could use both medicines and surgeries um, and actually have a longitudinal relationship with your patients. And from there, I, I went through the rest of early in my fourth year, I spent some rotations on urology and that sealed the deal for me. And ultimately, it, it ended up being a great fit for me just with my background in infectious diseases. Um, and I have a background in research with epidemiology and, and urology being a field that really values um, evidence-based medicine um, and using research to propel the field. It was an absolutely perfect fit for me. Thank you for telling us all that. Were there any other specialties? I mean, you mentioned infectious disease, but anything else that you were debating, any other surgical subspecialties that you were debating? A little bit. I, um, I did enjoy gynecology quite a bit. The kind of fun, uh, weird coincidence of it all is that my mom's a gynecologist and I actually have an older sister who's a urologist, um, which actually had no influence in me going to urology. If anything, it put it further down my list because I was just confused about what it was. And so that kind of was the closest I would have considered. I think I briefly toyed with ENT, but realized it wasn't for me and it didn't kind of scratch the same itches in terms of the, uh, uh, the sexual medicine part of it. Yeah. And just out of curiosity, because I know some of the UNC guys, did you ever rotate through IR there? I met a handful of them. I did a radiology rotation um, and uh, definitely had a great time. And, you know, I think it's actually interventional radiology, I think, shares a lot of similarities with urology, too, in terms of some of the procedures and the breadth of work that we do. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Ari Isaacson's a, a friend of mine over there and, and Peter Bream. Peter Bream was my program director. He just went there a few years ago. But uh, Steve, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Most of people who listen to the show are, are familiar with you, but um, tell us about yourself and then we'll kind of jump into basically what, what these urology pathways look like. Well, thanks, Aaron. It uh, certainly is a pleasure to be back in this venue and had a great time recording a podcast last time and excited to share you know, a little bit more unique topic uh, with uh, you and Blake and all of our listeners today. I'm originally from Iowa, uh, went to medical school there and then did residency training in the army, did my fellowship here up at Southwestern and then had some time to spend back in the army. I had a clinical practice and still have a clinical practice in reconstructive genitourinary surgery. And so I've been involved uh, with uh, resident and medical student education really since training in 2012. Um, I rejoined the faculty here when I finished my time in the army uh, a couple of years ago and was immediately asked to get involved with the residency program. Uh, became associate program director last year, and, and uh, uh, in, the, in, in the past year, recently took over as program director. So, really, what got me into resident and medical education was my kind of clinical experience in urology. And so, to be able to share some of those insights today from the from the program leadership perspective is a privilege. Steve, I wanted to actually start out, and my wife gave me this idea. My wife is uh, an ENT at Children's here in Dallas, and she's she's a fellowship program director, but she's, she suggests I ask you, you know, what do you do when a med student comes into your office and says, I want to do urology? Tell us about how that conversation goes from the get-go. Well, first and foremost, myself, and I'm sure many program directors, you know, across the country like to show a lot of excitement and enthusiasm and encouragement. I think it's a compliment to have individuals kind of interested in your field. And so when medical students show interest, that's the first thing that I do is kind of, you know, share my congratulations or my enthusiasm with them, so to speak. And then I like to kind of probe them a little bit and see what it is about urology that grabbed them, not necessarily an interrogation, so to speak, to make them 
see that they, you know, make some cut or something. But just to be clear that their interests and their intentions are in line with what you can achieve within urology. Obviously, the, the field, despite being a surgical subspecialty, is once you get look within urology, it's still quite vast. And so there's many opportunities and options within urology, but just, you know, start by, you know, kind of clarifying to make sure everything kind of fits and that they were given the proper information that perhaps uh, what led them to urology, you know, fits with what urologists actually do. Yeah. Feel them out a little bit, make sure it's not like their dad's a urologist pushing them in there or something. Make, yeah, I, I think that's great to just make sure it's a good fit before you even proceed with the conversation. Can you tell us for med students and even for, for me, from my perspective, Tell us about the, the current training programs for urologists. What pathways options exist? Um, is it pretty standardized? We have a few different options for IR. So that's why I was curious to know if, it, if it's this kind of similar for urology. Well, it's become very standardized, you know, five, 10, 15 years ago. And, and prior to that, it was probably much more variable. You know, once upon a time, everybody would do two years of general surgery followed by three years of urology. And then that kind of can, uh, actually expanded and was two plus four. And then there was the plus or minus of having a research year. And then over the last probably 10 years, that second year of general surgery has largely faded away for really probably the majority of programs and is probably gone now. And over the last few years, um, that first year is no longer a general surgery internship. Once upon a time, everybody that did urology would have first done a general surgery internship, which may or may not have included a month or two of urology, but now, um, our interns are part of our residency program from day one. The American Board of Urology has set clear criteria as to what that internship looks like. And it still includes general surgery, critical care, and some other things of those sorts, which you might expect. But having the entire five years uh, or six, if there is a research year for your program, kind of within the uh, loving arms of the urology program from day one, has been the big change in the last couple of years. And so with that comes uh, uniformity and standardization, but it does take away the potential to kind of backfill into urology, if you will, had you started in another trajectory, beginning with the general surgery internship. So certainly some pros for those that want to do urology from the beginning, but it makes it more difficult to pivot into it for those that started out in a different direction and wanted to change. I gotcha. And, and Blake, from your perspective, as a med student, did you encounter any obstacles to learning more about urology when you made that decision? Can you, can you touch on that? First of all, I actually had a lot of anxiety at the beginning of medical school about competitive specialties. There were people in my medical school class who, you know, maybe from age four knew they were going to be an orthopedic surgeon and came into medical school to do that or ENT or vascular, something else very competitive. And I didn't have that. And I actually was worried a lot that if I didn't start at day one for a specialty, would I be behind if I decided as a third year when I got a lot of initial exposure? So first of all, I want to quell kind of any notion that you have to decide about urology from day one. Um, many people discover urology uh, late in third year since it's not a standard rotation. And that's totally fine. You have plenty of time to catch up, make yourself a very strong applicant discovering urology as a third-year medical student and possibly I'm sure there are circumstances of early and fourth year and making that still work and happen and be a competitive applicant. I was lucky I went to a medical school with a large urology program, a very established urology program. Um, so from that perspective, I didn't have a lot of obstacles in terms of learning about urology. Uh, what I would say, though, across the board, I think urologists have a reputation, um, or at least I like to think that we have a reputation of being very nice surgeons and uh, very approachable surgeons. And 
for the vast majority of medical schools, they're at least going to be in communities where there's at least a private practice urologist. And what I would say, if you're in a situation where you don't have a urology residency or you don't have a urology department or division at the at your training hospital, reach out to private practice urologists too. And there's going to be many of them that are willing to bring you into their office, bring you into their field. Um, I would rely on your deans, your advising deans, past medical students who have applied in that field from your school and look for advice from those folks um, because I think that's where you're going to be able to kind of troubleshoot some of those obstacles because it's not it's not often that you're going to be the very first person from a program applying urology and someone's kind of broken that mold before you. Yeah, it's funny you say that because uh, we were just talking about Hurricane Katrina disrupting my medical school, you know, in the middle of my third year. And I actually got to do my urology rotation with a private practice guy and it was a great rotation. I loved it. Um, ultimately, it's not what I ended up choosing to do, but it was one of the best things about my surgical, you know, rotations that I had to do um, was was that urology rotation. So I think that's great advice. To there's not a lot of academic resources maybe at your institution. Seeking out those private practice docs would be great. And a lot of times that's um, what you actually have to do, right? So your the way the surgery rotation was set up at my institution, it's a two month block, and you had some general surgery time and then some elective time. And right. if you're somebody who's really thinking critically about different surgical specialties, you know, there's five, six, seven surgical subspecialties that are different matches. And um, if you're interested in those, you're going to have to, and you want to explore all of them, you're going to have to do some independent thinking and learning and devising a way to get some exposure to those specialties outside of your normal curriculum. Sure. In a minute, let's get, we'll get into kind of some of the best resources for people who are, do, you know, our first years or early, early bloomers that want to like, you know, they know from day one that they want to do that. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the competitiveness with Steve real quick is, you know, if, if from your perspective, how did it get so competitive? And do you think that are, are we seeing more trainees, more programs or, or is it, or they're less? Well, with why it's competitive, I mean, I'd like to say that it's, it's, uh, comes down to the fact that it's a, it's a specialty that is sought after, that there's a lot of good things about it. Like hinted to, we like to think of ourselves as, as kind of the more kind, uh, approachable group of surgeons. Uh, I guess we could debate whether that's true or not, but I think that there's a certain aspect of urology that kind of includes a lot of patient, patient kind of, or uh, our patient to doctor, uh, long-term um, interactions and relationships coupled with highly complex, uh, uh, technically exciting surgery. And so when you add that into the fact that the number of, of programs has not really increased commensurate with the rate of the aging population, we have an ongoing increase in demand um, nationwide. The, you know, there has been a small increase in the, in the probably the total number of spots available for training per year. But again, it just, it just hasn't kept pace with the rest of the population. And, and so fortunately being a, a procedural driven field that is needed by an aging population, uh, the compensation has, has remained kind of in the top quartile of, of all physicians. And so I think all those things, all those things together, you know, speak to why it's, you know, remain competitive, not only what we do, who we do it for and the relative need that we need that is, that's present for us to continue to do it. Uh, speaks to why it's remained quite competitive. Yeah, I, I, I will say every urologist I know seems extremely busy with plenty of plenty of work to do. There's nobody, you know, even even people starting out trying to build a practice seem, you know, pretty pretty busy from the get go. 
Um, so that, that's very helpful. I want to know, Steve, you know, we all hear us older guys that step one is going to be pass fail. How, you know, that's obviously one of the, the sort of parameters that programs use to filter out uh, or filter applicants. Where do you see that helping or hurting with respect to urology? Well, I think it's going to help some areas and, and perhaps I don't necessarily would say hurt, hurt some areas, but we'll, we'll challenge programs. I mean, if you look at, you know, if there's 400 or so applicants and the trend has been that a good majority of, of applicants will send out dozens and dozens of applications. And so programs have to review many times, two, three, 400 applications to select perhaps 30 or 40 or 50 interviews. And so with using some sort of a step one cutoff, it, it made it easy per se for the program to draw a line in the sand and push all, uh, all the applications from one end uh, of the desk off into the trash bin. But, you know, certainly there's an element of that that just sounds unfair. And there's data out there that suggests that it indeed is unfair for those that may not be great test takers or may not have the resources to prepare for those tests. So I think it helps the general group because if we, if it kind of forces us to review applications more holistically, I think that's going to help everybody in the end. And so some kind of more difficult aspect of selecting or having to you know, holistically review all those applications. Yes, that's a downside, but I think it's a long play upside in the end because it's going to allow us to really be more comprehensive in how we review these applications to ensure that we get truly the best applicants, not uh, without disqualifying those strictly because of a test score. Yeah. Blake, you're, you're recently, uh, you know, out in the last couple of years. What's the word on the street with the trainees about the step one score being pass fail? I think it's, it's overall a very polarizing debate. I think there are people who are going to be sticklers about it, thinking that this is a great thing. It's a single metric that compares everyone. But to call it a black and white test is something I really disagree with. Um, like Dr. Hudak mentioned, um, there's a lot of things that go into your performance on a single exam, on a single test day. We know this from good research on the SAT, for example, like the SAT is correlated with your zip code more than it is necessarily correlated with your IQ. And, you know, expanding that to a test like step one, obviously there, there are students whose uh, financial situations can allow them to afford more test materials, um, can allow them to study for longer periods of time, that it's not necessarily like using a single snapshot and that's your entire judgment of an individual, I think is extremely unfair. and. While it can be a useful thing from a, a program's perspective of saying kind of like an initial yes, no, I think what was necessary when we did have step one scores is still doing a a good review of those folks that fell below that criteria and seeing what other aspects of their application are there that would warrant them to be interviewed by a program. So I, I, I definitely will echo everything that Dr. Hudak said. I think it's going with probably a good thing. It's going to make things have to be much more time intensive in terms of reviewing everything, but that does make it very arduous in terms of preparing this. But I think overall, I think the USMLE made the decision it made and now we just have to see how it falls out in the next couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be interesting for sure. So let's get to what I'm sure all the med students are waiting to hear. So what are the key things that make an applicant stand out? Steve, what are your top three things that you would say that makes somebody stand out? Well, it's interesting. Uh, it's, you know, probably 10 years ago, we would have said board scores, grades, and perhaps letters of recommendation. Uh, the interesting thing is we just talked about the board scores. 
grades are becoming in increasingly difficult to interpret. Uh, many medical schools are doing pass-fail for the preclinical curricula, and many are also pivoting into pass-fail for the clinical curriculum or uh, simply having a situation where more than half the class gets honors, which you could say that this is largely a pass-fail sort of situation anyhow. And then letters of recommendation are oftentimes homogeneous and make it difficult to interpret everything. So can I answer your question uh, in, a, in a bit of a random way to say that the things that we thought we could depend on, we may not be able to. So I don't think I can really put it into three things. I think it really comes down to really, you know, fully reviewing that individual and identifying, I guess, traits or experiences that will demonstrate kind of the, the, the characteristics that, uh, regarding work ethic, resilience, and ability, ability to work as a team. And so that may be someone that was in the performing arts during college. It may have been someone that was an athlete, maybe a musician, maybe someone came from a rough background or was ill or their house was hit by a tornado. I read, I read a letter or a uh, personal statement that mentioned that last year. So not that any single one of those traits prove a good applicant, but I think when you see those sorts of things, whether it is uh, someone that can perform, someone that is an athlete, someone that has overcome hardship, and you can see how they use that as a pivot point to prove these traits that I mentioned with regards to work ethic, resilience, and ability to be a team player. I think that is really the kind of the crown jewel of holistic review is to really see how all of those things can come together and it can be very enjoyable to identify these traits, but very, very difficult to do it in a systematic fashion, particularly for a large number uh, of applicants. Yeah, they, I, I, I think that that work ethic, overcoming adversity, those kind of traits are, are definitely important. So on the, on the IR side, one thing that um, Bill Magivani, who from memory was talking about, was seeing that they excel in all areas. It's not just the surgical, you know, rotations that they really crushed. They crushed their path, you know, anything basically like across the board that they really put effort in across the board. And so um, I know that's, you were, you mentioned that it's hard because grades are, you know, it's kind of difficult to, to judge based off grades, but is there any other way to, to look at that beyond just grades? I think that there are some institutions that are pivoting to writing letters of recommendation in a graded manner. And so, for example, you know, we had 10 rotating medical students this year, and this individual was the top, within the top three performers. So I think using language like that can be helpful. The problem is, is that there's no way to really kind of hold each letter writer to that standard. Um, so it does re require a certain amount of faith in the way that that letter is written. But I think that that is a lot more powerful um, as someone reading these letters than simply, you know, the three, three paragraph letter where the first one restates their CV. The second one talks about how they did a great job on the rotation. And the third uh, that basically says they're going to do great because of, uh, you know, because of the person they are. And so I think the, the clear kind of delineation or stratification of candidates is helpful within letters. And then probably the last thing we haven't talked about yet is, is research. Uh, research is nice because there's, it's, it's very measurable, you know, presentations, publications, grants, et cetera. And so I don't necessarily think there's a certain cutoff. It's a prerequisite, but the presence of research, the depth of the research, the level of, of, of involvement, be it first author, uh, or just someone on the middle of the paper, I think is another way to kind of affirm uh, or, or, or for an application committee to really see that that individual is, is committed a lot of time preparing to, to be in this field. 
I was talking to my wife about this. Does that research need to be urology specific or because like, like you guys mentioned, some people switch, you know, their idea uh, of what they want to go into third, fourth year, but maybe they did a bunch of, you know, ENT research. And then they, it wasn't until they did the rotations where they realized, oh man, I really love urology. Does that matter to you? Or is that something that, that you factor in? I would say it largely doesn't matter. I think that like Blake mentioned, it can be very difficult to become exposed to urology early on. I didn't even know what a urologist was in the first day of medical school. Um, and so I think that the presence of research is important. Uh, the degree of involvement is important, but I wouldn't necessarily say that urology versus non-urology is a key factor. We certainly don't, cons we, it certainly doesn't invalidate the work uh, and the effort that they put forward. And so. Yeah. I think the presence of it is probably the most important aspect in and of itself, regardless of the field or specialty. I can chime in there too, in terms of my experience on the interview trail. Um, and I was still in person interviews um, back in 2019, but you know, for me, actually the majority of my research is non-urology. And a, a lot of my research is not even in clinical medicine, it's in public health and epidemiology. Um, by the time I was applying, I had ongoing research projects within urology um, that were kind of leading to publication. I had some abstracts that were out there. And a lot of my interviewers, yeah, they, they would comment on my urology research, but they actually would be even more interested in the things I did that were not urology. And so I, I think it goes without saying that good research experience, regardless regardless of the field is going to be helpful for you. Um, and then it's nice, you know, if you're at a point, if you were like me, where it was kind of end of third year getting into urology, it's nice to know if you have some things that are cooking at least. And it's a good uh, logical transition from you've had research in the past, you've been successful with pushing projects through, getting things to publication, having meaningful research experiences. And now that you have committed yourself to urology, you're diving into urology research as yeah, well. That's very helpful. So obviously COVID-19 has made it challenging to do away rotations. Away rotations, I assume, another big way for people to shine through, especially if they know they want to come to UT. Um, where where are we in that? I mean, obviously 2020 was difficult, but how, have you guys gotten back to allowing external rotations? Yeah, we've, uh, limits have been placed, but applicants are allowed uh, one away sub, a sub internship, uh, rotation in urology, if they have a home program two if they do not. Uh, so this allows basically everybody to have, you know, two discrete urology experiences, typically four weeks in length. And it's been a joy to have, have everybody back this year. We've had a lot, uh, uh, we, we had eight that just finished up last month and eight that are going to start on Monday. And so, especially, uh, you know, after coming out of the previous year where, um, there were really none at all other than our local students. It's been exciting to have everybody back and to kind of feel like, you know, the, the uh, residency trail juices are flowing again, so to speak. I don't know, Blake, do you feel the same uh, from your perspective? Yeah, I do. Um, it has been really nice. And for me, uh, you know, one of the th reasons I love medicine so much is the opportunity for teaching and especially in academic medicine, we definitely get that. And it's, it's been quite a joy to see people being able to come back in person. Uh, for me as a resident, you know, Having gone through the application pr process myself, you know, I think as an applicant, I was echoing a lot of the things that we've discussed here. But as a resident and from my perspective of, of things that I want to see and people that are interested in coming to uh, UT Southwestern, and this would be the same if I was at any program, is how well am I going to work with somebody? And you can get some impression of that um, from an application, but it's really nice to work with people because you get a direct uh, visualization of that as well. 
so for the med student who maybe is going to, whether they're a UT student or they're external, what does success look like for, uh, you know, from, from your perspective, Steve, and then I'll ask you as well, Blake, for a med student rotating through. If I could, let me answer the, the question in a little bit different way. I guess sure. let me, let me answer it from the perspective of if I were a medical student or how would I advise a medical student that was about to start a rotation? And the first that I would, first thing that I would say would be to really treat it like a four-week job interview. Think of it as an opportunity for you to learn about the program and for the program to learn about you. Be the first person to arrive in the morning and the last person to leave in the evening. You know, you're not going to show up for a job interview 15 minutes late. And so um, obviously things happen you know, their family emergencies, there's car accidents. So, you know, people are reasonable, but your day-to-day should really focus in on kind of uh, treating each day with that level of, of, uh, of importance. Dress professionally, and there's, there's nothing that needs to be fancy about that. But, uh, you know, just again, same thing that I would say with, with the job interview perspective. I think it's really important to remember that even though not everybody is sizing you up, that there's not, everybody doesn't have a clipboard in their pocket and keeping score, you'll be encountered or you'll have the opportunity to encounter a lot of people. And so it's important to be yourself, but also to be professional and kind to everybody that you see. That includes the ancillary personnel that you see in the hospital. That includes the administrative personnel, program coordinators and whatnot, because it just um, kind of shows an air of almost indifference uh, or a phoniness if you are one person or, or one type of a personality with the faculty and attendings, and then act like a jerk when you have an opportunity to interact with some of the other, um, you know, non, non-physicians. With regards to preparing for the uh, actual kind of meat of the rotation, know the things that you can know. Anatomy from your perspective as a urology uh, applicant is never gonna change. So really to know anatomy inside out is always, is always the best thing that you can study for and it's gonna improve you, uh, your, 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 um, your status within surgery regardless of where you end up. Know how to tie a knot, know how to throw a suture. Hopefully your medical school um, has given you some opportunities to do this. It doesn't take fancy supplies to do this. You can go to the grocery store and get a thing of dental floss and just tie knots with dental floss, left hand, right hand, one hand, two hand, so you're blue in the face. And again, it's not that we're sitting there with a cl- with a stopwatch, giving you you know checking to see how each medical student does. But it is really nice and 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 it it leaves a good taste in your mouth as a faculty when someone kind of confidently takes an opportunity to do some technical skills in the operating room. Uh, and kind of shows from the beginning that, that, uh, you know, they have, uh, coming from a starting point that would be what we would expect, um, of a medical student. And then the last thing that I would say is, you know, know the patients that you're going to see as best you can. If you're going to the operating room, uh, read about them, if you're given access to the medical record and then be prepared to present them. One thing that I did when I was driving to my different rotations, I would, I probably looked like an idiot if someone looked at me through the side of the window, but I'd be driving down the road, basically verbally practicing the presentations that I would give. Again, this doesn't really speak to my ability um, as a future surgeon, but any opportunity that you have to kind of show that you um, have put work into the rotation, that you know the patients are be able to tell the story, uh, speak the language, so to speak, is going to be uh, viewed uh, highly and viewed well by the faculty that are going to be working with you. Yeah. And of course, now you can also listen to a podcast on your way to your rotation too, right? <laughs> Especially. <laughs> Even better. Great. Thank you, Steve. Blake, from your perspective, having med students on the team, what, what, how can they help you as, as a resident? Yeah. So I'll echo everything that Dr. Hudak said. Um, my background for all of this is that an away rotation can be incredibly difficult, but it's four weeks and that's what you're devoting yourself to. And that there's 
There's really no reason not to be prepared for an operating room. There's really no reason to be prepared for clinic. And uh, it's important to show that you are preparing because for us, you know, that is incredibly helpful for residents. And it's a good demonstration to faculty that you are engaged and you are, are ready to do everything you can to help a patient out. As far as me from a resident perspective, um, I think it's actually shifted a little bit from uh, when I was an applicant, what I thought was critically important. Seeing as a resident for me is I'm seeing about how can my day get get easier um, and what kind of tasks do I have to do and where can a medical student fit in to help with that? And a lot of times that's really simple. You know, that's having supplies on rounds, um, being able to help with dressing changes, um, to move things along in the mornings, especially when we're a little bit busier, probably fighting some early morning consults as well. But for me, one of the biggest things is situational awareness. And it's something that I have been struggling over the past couple of weeks with medical students about how do I teach that? And I, I don't necessarily think it is something that can be taught, but it's something to um, just be aware of your presence uh, with both faculty and residents. Um, there are times where, you know, maybe I am like, just got my fifth consult in a row, I'm getting behind and um, somebody coming up to me and asking me for um, advice for like an elective faculty cases tomorrow is like, that's not the time or the place, right? And so I think being aware of your residents and being aware of when are the times that I can step up and I can be really helpful. And then when are the times where it's actually important for me to step back and just kind of watch what the residents are doing and um, before jumping in to try and help with that. My biggest advice for medical students is just kind of thinking about their own presence um, with with residents and about where they can be very helpful and where it's a time where the best thing is just going to sit back and watch and kind of learn from what the residents are doing in front of them. And, and otherwise, what I would say is the, the medical students that I respond the most to are residents who are engaged, they're easy to work with, and just a pleasure to be around because right now I'm looking for who are going to be my like next five interns I get. Um, and that's going to be awesome. And if you're somebody who I know as a medical student, you're easier to work with, you're flexible, you have a good fund of knowledge that I don't have to go through every little tiny thing and we can just expand on that. That's ideal. And that's wonderful for me as a resident. Yeah, thank you, Blake. That's solid advice. Hey, so Steve, when a med student comes to you and says they want to do urology, obviously it's not going to be a, you know, a given that they're going to, they're going to get into the, you know, UT Southwestern program. How many programs do you tell, do you give them advice on how many programs to apply to? Is there a typical number that people go by? Well, this is kind of a, this is kind of a moving target. I think the cost of applying to programs and the cost of interviewing to numerous programs is something that has kind of continued to go up and uh, is a huge burden for medical students. And so that being said, it's a very personal thing for an individual to make this decision as well. So I don't really say there's a, a specific number that you want to shoot for. I mean, I think the main piece of information that I give is don't apply to a place that you wouldn't want to be. Um, and that can be difficult to know, you know, from the beginning, but try not to play games, try to, you know, be honest with yourself in terms of where you might want to be and where you think you could match up. And that I think a, a very important component of this for all medical students early on in the process is to try to connect with a faculty mentor within the field that you're looking towards. So urology in this case, or whatever anyone's interested in, someone that you can meet with a few times, someone that you can be honest with and who can be honest with you so you can really know where you stack up. And I think that can help guide the process as well. And then I think we're gonna see some shifts in the years to come 
any crossover listeners that you have on this podcast for uh, Backtable ENT will be familiar with this. Urology is rolling out a preference signaling program uh, this year where applicants, after they submit or as they submit their applications, can signal five programs, not including the ones they rotated at, that they are their favorite five programs. And so it's almost like a, an opportunity to for both programs and applicants alike to identify who among that large group that have ap- applied who are the most most serious about that application. And so this was quite successful within the ENT field last year within the ENT match. And um, I hope will be similarly successful this year uh, for urology. Yeah, that's great. Blake, do you have anything to add to that in terms of like, what's the word on this, you know, amongst trainees, uh, is there a magic number to, to match? No, I, I don't think there's a magic number. Um, like Dr. Hudak said, I, I, it goes without saying that the entire application process, regardless of what specialty you are in, mentorship is key. Having a good mentor who um, not only knows the field, but also knows the the recent match is very helpful in terms of aligning kind of your specific prospects. Um, I was really fortunate to have more mentors than I could even handle um, applying into urology. And it scared me almost, you know, one of my mentors um, who uh, is Stephen Riggs, uh, who's the program director at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. He gave, gave great advice in terms of how many programs I should apply to. And if you look at the AUA statistics each year, I actually like went and re-looked at them today just to see the 2021 trends. But if you look at the number of programs that people are applying to, um, since 2012, it's increased just three or four spots every year. When I applied, it was 71 programs a year, 74 last year, or 77 last year. Um, and to me, that's frankly a ridiculous number. It's always been a ridiculous number. and. For me, I think it's about having a really good conversation with mentors about your prospects. Um, and I don't think it's necessary to apply to that many programs. And I think that unfortunately, with this data that's out there published by AUA, is that people are going to see a rising trend and keep going with that. And especially with the virtual interview season, that now that the cost of and the logistics of going to interviews is, you know, you could do five interviews a week, whereas when I was applying, doing three in a week was exhausting um, because you're flying between different cities. You have costs with all of that. You know, every program that's a couple hundred bucks out the window um, just to interview. And now a lot of that cost has gone down with the virtual interviews. So I would caution people about applying to that many. I think that really look at programs on paper, see what programs interest you. If there are cities or states in this country that you absolutely would never move to, don't waste an application there, both for yourself and the effort and the money that goes into that. And also allow somebody who would be really interested in going to that program, allow them to have a, a you know, one less applicant for that program to that program to go through for them to consider that person that is actually very interested in that program. You know, I went into the whole process like I was very much so, you know, if I got if I had two interviews that conflicted, I would be very quick about making the decision about which interview I would cancel. And I would be very quick about giving up that interview because for me, it was almost more important to be selfless than that and give that spot to somebody that would really consider that program. I, a lot of people don't go into it with that process, and I disagree with that. I talk about that for a lot of a lot of time, but I think it's really important not to be selfish in this process. And if you're lucky enough to get a lot of interviews, um, there is no benefit to you matching interviewing past twelve or thirteen programs. Your chances at matching once you interview at twelve or thirteen is already like ninety seven percent. So you're not doing yourself any favors by interviewing at more. Okay. 
Yeah, it's funny. Um, I think you just back when I was in med school, the average person spent like $5,000 on interviews, traveling and all, you know, I mean, that's crazy. And we're borrowing that money too. It's closer between Most eight people. and 10,000 for urology now. And that was with traveling. Yeah. Um, it's going to be cheaper yeah. without that. And, you know, and that goes without saying in terms of what things will look like in a post-COVID era, but it's definitely a scary thing. Well, we're getting close to wrapping up, guys. But I, I wanted to give you guys the opportunity to talk about the UT Southwestern program a little bit, what it sets it apart and um, strengths and weaknesses. And uh, so I'll start with you, Steve. Well, I could talk about this for another 45 minutes, <laughs> but no, so that's part of our job. Take your time. We're not, well, yeah, we're not pressed for time, so. I'll just say a couple of things. I'm not going to be comprehensive with this. I'll just mention the things uh, so I don't steal any of Blake's thunder. But I would say what was, you know, not having done residency training here, I did my fellowship here, which obviously is a different a different uh, kind of ballgame, so to speak. But the reason that I chose to come here as faculty was because of the size and the breadth and the longevity of the faculty here. There's a large group of our our most senior faculty that have been here for a long period of time, that many of whom could have left years ago to take leadership positions at other programs, um, but have chosen to stay. And there's probably a multitude of reasons for that, from the leadership of our, of, of our chair, Dr. Klaus Rauburn, to the, the facilities, due to the patient mix, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that that entity in and of itself of the longevity of our most senior faculty, I think kind of uh, engenders a theme of stability. And I think that stability is important for anybody starting a new job, let alone a job that you plan on having for five years. And so I think that that is an important aspect, not only the quality of uh, the most senior faculty, but also the stability. I think in that vein, it's not been a stagnant program that despite the stability at the, at the upper half of the faculty, the size of the faculty has doubled. So there's still a lot of, uh, you know, fresh and new faces and ambitious young early career urologists that have joined here immediately after fellowship to start and grow their careers. And so I think that combination of kind of youthful vigor and masterful senior stability kind of creates a good environment that really helps let trainees see all aspects of how to teach and learn and can learn from different angles and different perspectives. So that's just where I'll kind of start and finish. I could share a lot more, but I, I'd like Blake to get a chance to, to share what, what he thinks makes us special too. Yeah, from my perspective, uh, there's a couple of things that I really want to highlight about UT Southwestern. First of all, um, in academic urology programs across the country, as with many specialties, you're going to see a predominance of oncology faculty. Um, and what I think I really looked at for a program was um, leadership that actually wasn't always going to be a urologic oncologist. And it doesn't mean that the leadership of urologic oncology is bad or different in any way. It just, I think it gives an appreciation to all the subspecialties within urology. And at UT Southwestern, we not only have representation of every uh, different fellowship training option within urology, but we have depth of that. So we don't just have a single reconstructive urologist. We actually have a pair, you know, we don't have one uh, female reconstructive urologist. Uh, we have three, four now, actually. And so every specialty is well represented at UT Southwestern. Um, and that pairs actually well with the fact that we actually have a diversity of training environments. We have a large university hospital. We have Parkland, uh, which is one of the largest county hospitals in the country, um, the biggest, busiest ER in the country, um, which is a pro or a con, depending on which uh, resident you ask. And 
the reason actually, I actually rotated at UT Southwestern as a sub-I, um, as a fourth year medical student. And the reason I came here actually is I, I asked my older sister, who's a urologist, and I asked her, I was like, where do you see colleagues coming out of that are really well-trained surgeons? And she said, UT Southwestern. And I came here and I, I knew it was going to be a busy, uh, high volume center. But I left and it was like this new family I had met. I had faculty that were genuinely interested in who I was as a person. My letter of recommendation um, from here was three times as long as any other place I rotated. Um, and I, I just felt a heart to this program. And I think the residents here are incredibly supportive of each other. Um, and the faculty is incredibly supportive of the residents um, in a way that I haven't directly, obviously have not been a resident at any other program, but you hear our young faculty talk about the environment here, the atmosphere here, and they will say it's so different from where they trained. And it, that's really refreshing to hear as a resident. And I will say that, you know, coming back from my interview as a, as a fourth year medical student was like coming home and it was a no brainer that this is where I needed to train. And I'll say that all of that's been completely reflected into my experiences as a resident. Um, I could not feel more supported by um, Dr. Hudak, by our other faculty. And what's wonderful about it is that you can leave this program and you can choose to be any type of urologist in any subspecialty in a general practice, in the most academic place, in the most rural underserved private practice gig. And our faculty will, su will support you no matter what. Yeah, it sounds like culture is one of the best things about it. And uh, I've heard that from my good friend, uh, Ditya Bakrodi, multiple times. So that's it, great to hear. And, and, you know, this is, as to be expected, there's a lot to pack in here for the, for the med students. And you guys covered a lot. Any final thoughts or key pearls that we failed to mention uh, before, we, before we end this? The last thing that I'll say, Aaron, is that I think that we talk about things being competitive and we talk about the different aspects that make a, a great, uh, you know, applicant. And those are all true, but let's also remember the statistics uh, over the last year that among U.S. graduating seniors, the match rate is still about 80%. And so this is still a very accessible field. And so, especially as we kind of pivot away from uh, score cutoffs uh, and kind of intensely graded medical school curricula, uh, I hope, you know, just to encourage students that are interested in the field to pursue it if you have that interest and don't uh, second guess or discount yourself based on, you know, any of these kind of cut and dry criteria that are being less commonly used. Get a mentor within the field, talk to them about your interests, talk to them about what you think will make you a good urologist. Uh, and then if it all fits, go for it. And we'd love to have you. Great. Well, thank you guys so much. This is going to be immensely helpful to the, to the medical students out there interested in urology. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in to Backtable Urology. Thanks for having me as a guest host. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Just real quick, I wanted to plug Dr. Hudak's uh, episode that he did. Uh, it was episode 11, Evaluation and Management of Post-Prostatectomy Incontinence. Be sure to check that one out in addition to all the others. Thanks, Thanks, thanks everybody. Thanks, everybody.